0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are discussing the newest theological product that we have ever covered in the entire history of Queen of the Sciences. We are having a look today at the new statement of the International Lutheran Pentecostal Dialogue called The Spirit of the Lord is Upon Me. Wow, Dad, we usually wait for things that have stood the test of time. Will this or not? We don't know, but we're taking our chances with it anyway.
1: <laughs> well, I think you have some in kind of uh, involvement in this In this. In this ecumenical dialogue statement or convergence statement, I'm not sure how to characterize it or what genre it's in, so why don't you tell us about it?
0: Yes. In the interest of full disclosure, let me say up front that I worked as a consultant to this dialogue on account of my longstanding relationship with the Institute for Ecumenical Research in Strasbourg, France, which is a close affiliate partner of the Lutheran World Federation, which sponsored this dialogue. And since its inception in 1965, the Institute has always sent consultants to work on the LWF's ecumenical dialogue. So I was the deputed one for this one. Um, And I should probably to just say a little bit about how that happened. I started working at the Institute in 2008. I came because of my background in Eastern Orthodox theology. But at that time, um, a certain type of Pentecostal, particularly classical Pentecostals, that's the term used for the denominations that came into existence in the early 20th century, hot on the heels of the Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles and William J. Seymour's um, seminal work there. Um, And they sort of uh, formed and institutionalized in the next 20 to 30 years. So that should be uh, distinguished from charismatics within historic churches and then later what's often called neo-Pentecostal churches. Those are the ones that you're more likely to see on TV, or to come from Brazil and preach prosperity messages, um, or the kind of things that make people most nervous about Pentecostals. Classical Pentecostals are um, are kind of settled in, and they have faced all the institutionalization challenges of older churches. Um, and the people that I worked with tended to have PhDs, so I should just put that out there. Uh, anyway, so when I came to the Institute in 2008, Pentecostals were becoming interested in ecumenism for the first time. Interestingly, Pentecostals started out believing what was happening in their revivals was, to use an anachronistic term, ecumenism. That they were going to be the the true movement of unity that disregarded all institutional ecclesiastical barriers. That obviously didn't happen. It never happens. That's a separate issue. Um but they had always regarded institutionalized ecumenism that mainline Protestants, Reformation era, and Methodists and so forth, as well as Catholics and Orthodox were involved in, as probably deeply compromised and possibly of the devil. Um, but turn of the the millennium... They started to change their tunes. Some important stuff happened on the multilateral level. We won't get into that. But anyway, uh, early early 21st century um, conversations started happening between Lutherans and Pentecostals. Like, could we talk to each other? There actually has been a Catholic Pentecostal dialogue since I think the 70s. Um, and there had also been longer standing ones between Pentecostals and Orthodox, Pentecostal and Reformed. I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming Lutherans were late to the game because nothing makes us break out in hives like the Schwermeri. And a lot of Lutherans have simply <laughs> assumed that Pentecostals are Schwermer. Um, but once this um, this conversation started to happen, the Institute in Strasbourg sponsored a kind of... Uh, unofficial dialogue. I came in about two thirds of the way through that process and was uh, folded into it. And um, basically my colleague said, well, Pentecostals are the newest Christian movement and you're the youngest person here. So that makes sense. You do this. So I said, (laughs) okay. And dad, pretty much all I knew of Pentecostals up to that point was Uh, crazy great aunt Iola, who I think was a devoted partisan of Jimmy Swaggart back in the day. I somehow remember you and her having arguments at a family reunion. Is that, am I remembering that right?
1: No, actually she and her son visited us in the Parsonage in Delhi. And uh, I I think that's where we disputed about some things.
0: Okay. Well, Jimmy Swaggart is not a great way to become first acquainted with Pentecostalism. So I I had a fair amount of, um, Um, very uh, uninformed baggage of my own to get over. So let me uh, say to uh, listeners out there who are probably more likely coming from Lutheran or mainline or old historic church backgrounds and Pentecostal ones, um, we all got a lot to learn. (laughs) So there there are certainly things to be alarmed about, but there's certainly a lot of things to be very um, jazzed and appreciative of. So uh, that is the context for me here. I think
1: you're going to show it to us here, but I just have to say the whole project, you know, I guess I'm a typical Lutheran. The whole project uh, I greeted with considerable skepticism. And uh, that's because of my own history uh, and experiences with Pentecostals. Um, I, I can just mention when I was the pastor in upstate New York in our town, a new pastor of the Assembly of God Church arrived in town and made quite a splash with his winsome personality. And uh, I kind of liked some of the things he was saying in the the town ministerial association, because the other clergy were desiccated mainline uh, Protestants. uh, And, you know, I, I think with considerable embarrassment, they would uh, mentioned the name of Jesus Christ, uh, on the occasions in which they were absolutely required to, uh, but not like this assembly of God preacher, you know, who was, uh, bounding the gospel away to anybody who would listen. And his fav- fav- favorite byline was, my Bible says, my Bible says, and then he would <laughs> fill in the blank like that. And, you know, I, when I tried to befriend him, um, you know, he basically um, gave me the cold shoulder. And it was pretty evident that uh, he was looking to steal sheep. I have to just be right down blunt about it. Um, And he didn't earn the uh, approval of the other clergy in town, because we soon discovered how he was preying upon weakened, uh, disaffected members of our congregations. And there was also this skepticism uh, about the one worldwide church that the ecumenical movement was trying, conspiring to build and was part of the expansion of the United Nations. And they were going <laughs> to take over the world. And it was a sign of the of the approaching um, uh, eschatological battle between St. Michael uh, and the Satan or something like that. I, I don't remember the details. So. so for these reasons, I had considerable skepticism about the project. But I guess over the years, you've told me it's not like that.
0: Oh, sure, it's like that. Just like what you described of the mainline is often like that. So I think part of what we'll be doing in our conversation here is trying to sort out what ecumenism is actually doing, what it can do, what it can't do, what a statement from an ecumenical dialogue actually means. So I think one principle that you learn really fast working on an ecumenical dialogue is: Are we talking about the best version of ourselves or the real version of ourselves, the idealized version of? ourselves or the most compromised and um, blasphemously heretical version of ourselves. So, you know, um, Dad, if, if somebody said to you, what church should I go to? Would you just simply say carte blanche? Oh, just go to any Lutheran church. You will get the pure gospel there. Would you say that? No. No. Okay. And if somebody is talking about orthodoxy and says we are the one true church and you say, what about the Patriarchate of Moscow? Right. Or yeah. if, if you, um, yeah. you know, we can repeat the example for Catholics and for uh, every other Protestant flavor we have going on here. So,
1: yeah, I just I have to laugh there, Sarah, because a good friend of mine when I was a graduate student was a young man named Ralph Del Cole. And he was a, oh, sure. a cr- cradle Catholic, but he had become uh, born again and spirit baptized in the interim. And then he, as such, he came to be study at Union Seminary and um, he was younger than me. I think I actually tutored him in some classes, but we became friendly. And then, you know, we parted ways after I left Union. I didn't hear from him for years. And then I realized that he had become a significant Catholic theologian. (laughs) And I got in touch with him just before he died. Uh, Tragically, he died very young of cancer. Um, when I realized who he was. uh, And I'd read a wonderful uh, article about him on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, in which he basically said, for most of us, the Holy Spirit is nothing but an empty name uh, that somehow vaguely uh, communicates the presence of Christ uh, in his physical absence or something like that. Mm, mm-hmm. And he said, if that's true, then the Trinitarian confession of the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life is vacuous. It means nothing. So he, even as a Catholic, he retained, I guess, what he had gained as a Pentecostal. Mm.
0: So that's very interesting because for me, I you know because I had to like learn really fast about Pentecostalism. Of course, I did a ton of of reading, historical and contemporary, to just get up to speed. And you know, a lot of it is is weird and wooly, and uh, that that might be an interesting topic for another time. How how Pentecostalism exactly came to be and its its doctrinal as well as its experiential claims. But what made me finally take it seriously is uh, getting to know East African Lutheranism, where there is no meaningful distinction between Lutheran and Pentecostal or Lutheran and yeah. char- charismatic you can say you can say charismatic if the word Pentecostal makes you uncomfortable <laughs> but oh, sure but and uh, I, I I may have mentioned before this uh, amazing moment I had actually during this Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue when we were in Madagascar and heard from one of the seminary professors about the revival movement he'd been involved in as we've I think we've said on our episode on Nenny lava Madagascar has had four major revival And they're all still going, one for over a hundred years by now. But uh, he talked extensively about their deliverance ministry of exorcism. And when he was finished, he patted his copy of the Book of Concord, which was lying on the table next to him, and said, It's all in here. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, whether or not you, c- you can make that textual claim, I think the point is for those Lutherans who are very ardent about Lutheran doctrine, there is no perceived conflict between that and what we would in the, the North America would tend to characterize as, as the others practice uh, in Pentecostal churches. So at that point, I realized like um, more than in other cases, there is a porous boundary between Pentecostalism and other kinds of institutions institutionalized denominational Christianity. And so for that reason alone, I said, well, even if I want to be a good Lutheran, I have to understand this, um, to say nothing of my um, duty in the Lord to uh, seek the oneness be- that is between Jesus and his father, uh, which he talks about in John 17. So um, but that still, of course, begs the question of, of, you know, who are we talking to and and what's going on here? And what does an ecumenical statement actually do? So to get into the, the actual uh, dialogue that led to the statement we're talking about today, um, because of the proto-dialogue between the Institute and the select Pentecostals, Um, the LWF uh, became very interested and open to starting an official international-level dialogue, as has been the case forever with Catholics and Reformed and Orthodox and Anglicans and and all the rest. Um, And, you know, there was some kind of... um, personnel turnover. So it took a few years to get off the ground, but we finally had our first official meeting in 2016, which where I, again, was the consultant from the LWF. And um, uh, as I understand it, the Pentecostals uh, uh, on their team were self-selecting Pentecostals who were interested, In ecumenical dialogue with Lutherans, most but not all of them came from the Assemblies of God, which is a worldwide denomination. Actually, there are more members in the Assembly of God worldwide than I think there are in the entire LWF, and that's just one Pentecostal Um, Classical Pentecostal denomination, by far the largest. But but in the course of our dialogue, the Pentecostal World Fellowship, which is analogous to the LWF, uh, ended up picking up the dialogue and becoming its patron. So it does have that kind of uh, world level endorsement. Um, And then over the next few years, we met in Wittenberg, Germany. It was 2017. So of course we did. We met in Santiago de Chile in South America, in Madagascar, as I mentioned. And then we took off several years because of a certain pandemic, which will go unnamed. And then uh, last fall in 2022, we had our final meeting in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary. And one of the reasons we met in so many locations around the globe is precisely because we realized right off there was the question of what good does an international dialogue do, especially with, um, you know, well, Lutherans are certainly multifarious and various across the world, but even more so with Pentecostals. So what we tried to do in each of our meetings was to connect to local Lutheran and Pentecostal churches in the different parts of the world we were in with the explicit intention of getting people People there interested in regional or national level dialogue or at least, you know, saying hello and getting to know each other. Uh, so I think we went into this with a much more than is typical self-conscious desire to um, work across all the the levels. Um, Often international dialogues are purely scholarly and they exist at a very official level, but getting them to be noticed, much less incorporated um, in in a smaller uh, or lower, so to speak, levels is quite difficult. So we tried from the outset to incorporate that into what we were doing.
1: Yeah, and is that where the case studies come from in the the document?
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. (laughs) Because, uh, yes, I think I'm not, I cannot say with absolute certainty that no ecumenical Dialogue statement at least at the international level has ever done this before, but I actually am not aware of any other. And I think this is actually one of the most important and interesting features of this statement is that it is accompanied throughout each of the five sections that we'll go through with specific case studies and what we're talking about. So instead of being uh, again in this purely theoretical or idealized version, um, we had the idea that we should actually show how this plays out. Uh, in actual in our actual history and practice, um, and I I think that gives just a whole different tenor to the document because it isn't this abstraction um, or propaganda of what we think we're like, but actually tries to show well th- this is what we have we have done and how it has happened, and in that respect gives a more tangible connection to what we're doing. I'm just curious, how how did you you respond or what did you think when you saw those as you read through this statement?
1: Well, you know, I had reactions on two different levels. I thought the case studies were interesting and they added, you know, some color to what can often be very dry documents. And so I thought they served positively to pull the reader along um, and make more concrete the uh, the materials that were being discussed in each section. So I thought that was entirely good. Um, then then the critical scholar in me says, what principle of selectivity was going on here? <laughs> you know, how how did these case studies pop up that just so beautifully illustrate the claims that are being made? <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that.
0: No. Fair enough. And again, it, it, the question we're going to be going through without here is what exactly is an ecumenical statement trying to do and what genre is it? So the, the critical question is fine. I think that what. Uh, As much as anything, what we were aiming at is, as you know perfectly well, there are lots of people who think that, you know, theology is as dry as unbuttered toast, and it is completely irrelevant to reality. And, you know, I think both of us would say sometimes it's helpful not to be relevant. (laughs) Sometimes it's helpful to just sit back and think about things without having to make them instantly useful. But um, we also know that actually, because we're both you know, pastors and Christians, we actually care very much about the theology that we teach and practice and believe to uh, find its way into actual lived life. So this was an attempt, I think, to expand the genre of what both theology and an ecumenical statement can do by just giving some living color to what was going on. I don't think there was anything more, uh, more ambitious, but also more, more critically discerning than that.
1: Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Why don't we move through the document, which is very interesting because you organized it around the Luke 4 Sermon of Jesus in Nazareth taking up Isaiah 61. and that is the provides the, the, the guiding biblical framing of the entire, document, right?
0: Yes, that is right. And that was very deliberate because, um, again, to go back to my Lutheran Schwermer assumptions, I thought Lutherans cared about the Bible and, you know, those Schwermer enthusiast Pentecostals didn't. That was a, a huge, huge error on my part. And sometimes I wonder if the accusation isn't better leveled against Lutherans these days, at least in certain yeah. parts of the world. Uh, so actually, it was the um, secretary on the Pentecostal side, Jean Daniel Plus, uh, Swiss Pentecostal, a lovely human being, Uh, he proposed using this verse um, from, as you said, Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, and it reads like this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And um, out of this verse, he proposed that we have a five-year process um, and each of the years be devoted to a certain, you know, in succession aspect of this particular verse in order to take up specific topics. So that is how our document is structured and, and each part was discussed and then drafted up at each of the meetings. So I'll just, I'll go through the whole structure, Dad, and then we can look through some of the details. So Part one from our first meeting in the Philippines is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and we basically engage in self-description. Um, this is an important ecumenical principle. You, you let each church um, describe and identify itself to the other, and usually there is a lot of clearing up of misapprehensions uh, that goes on in that process. Then part two, second year, because he has anointed me to bring good news. Our focus here was on the Trinitarian mission of salvation, specifically with proclamation in word and deed. Part three, year three, to bring good news to the poor was talking about service to the poor and the needy as central to the work of the church. Part four, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free. That was the year that we dealt with um, the practice of healing as well as deliverance ministry from the powers of evil. Uh, I hope that already has all the Lutherans of radars up and freaking out a little bit. What? Deliverance ministry? Yep. And then part five, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was kind of a summary of our mutual learning and hopes for the future.
1: Okay, so what I get from that is that the uh, uh, Jean Jean Daniel plus proposed this way of framing things and uh, 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 that was agreed upon and then it broke down into these five five parts and it was under these rubrics then you that you talked about um, the case studies came up and and the various um, Uh, You know, sometimes it confused me about what was a common statement and what was um, like a differentiation. Um, It seemed to me that like part two, uh, which you talked about the Trinitarian mission of salvation, seemed like an entirely uh, common statement that both sides fully agreed to. Am I right about that?
0: Uh yes, you are correct. So that, that is a, another um, um genre and strategy point that is good to bring up now. So one of the the issues in ecumenism is how much you push the convergence and how much you cope with the divergence. And um There's push and pull in both direction because, of course, on some level, the whole purpose of an ecumenical dialogue is to find out and then state plainly what we have in common. And the commonality is the basis for mutual recognition of some kind or another of the other as true Christian, true church. preaching the true gospel. Um, On the other hand, the reason you're divided is because you have disagreements. (laughs) So unless you can, as you like to say, achieve disagreements by stating clearly what is different between you and then either finding ways to resolve it or explaining why it has to remain unresolved, um, nobody will take your statement seriously. So the question is, which side do you wait more and for what purpose? And within this particular dialogue, there were definitely uh, two, two philosophy's intention. And I think the easiest way to say it is that there was um, a strong feeling on the side of the Pentecostals that they really wanted actually to stress convergence, um, because this statement for them is in part a witness to their worldwide community, trying to say, no, look, really, we have a lot in common with these Lutherans. We should recognize what we have in common. We should engage in ecumenism and take them seriously as fellow Christians. We have an obligation to them. And also, I think for a lot of the Pentecostals involved, they are very much more attuned to the whole history of the church. They really want to demonstrate their investedness in, for example, the conciliar teachings about the Holy Trinity and the two natures of Christ. and. And um, the Pentecostals that we worked with were definitely self-consciously Protestants. Actually, they some of them I, I know would explicitly reject the idea that Pentecostals are a newer separate thing. They say, no, we are Protestants. We come out of this heritage. We also teach justification by faith. We also teach the centrality of the Scripture and reading it in the vernacular. And of course, they have married clergy and and all the rest. So for them, it was really important to bear witness to their larger community that there is continuity between them and us.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of gathered that. In fact, I made some notes as I was reading this, that, you know, this part one, the self-description part, where um, the argument is that Lutherans move from doctrine to experience, but Pentecostals move from experience to doctrine. I really kind of questioned that because it seemed to me that the move to experience presupposes, presupposes, uh, the the as you were saying, the Protestant Christian heritage, including the uh, Trinitarian theology of the ancient church. Uh, and, and so within kind of a decadent Christendom or something like that, The Pentecostal experience erupts and evolves, but the presupposition of the entire movement is what it has inherited from the Christian past. Um, And it has antecedents in Protestantism, especially in Pietism and uh, pre-Pentecostal forms of revivalism. Uh, So I I really Kind of question the argument that Pentecostals move from experience to doctrine. It seems to me they move from a particular understanding of doctrine that they want to see be actualized in experience.
0: Yeah. And I think actually you could make the argument in the other direction that Lutherans uh, come out of an experience of decadent church and uh, out of that develop doctrinal responses that then go on yeah. to test any further. Yes. So th- obviously there there is... Um, this is a schematized and simplified version. And, you know, Dad, when you first responded to this this document, you listed all the things we didn't talk about, and I teased you and said, oh, you wanted us to do a joint Lutheran-Pentecostal systematic theology to cover everything. <laughs> <laughs> so again, what is the genre of an ecumenical statement, and what can it actually accomplish? There has to be some way of simplifying and communicating these enormous questions uh, to an audience that have not, Done any of the background reading or historical work, or met in person with each other over the course of these many years and worked towards something. Uh, this is a, a huge communication gap in all ecumenical documents. Um, I, I was I just re-listened uh, to our episode in preparation for this on making ecumenism sexy again. I'll link it in the show notes for those of you who may have missed it. But we talked there about the very negative reception of the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification among Lutherans. Initially, who who couldn't who didn't see and didn't understand what what was trying to be accomplished by that statement. So the same thing goes here. So basically, this idea of experience to doctrine or doctrine to experience was an attempt to schematize and simplify this this gigantic thing. I think the basic thing what we're trying to address is in Pentecostalism, if you if you uh, you know date it back to the Azusa Street revival and possibly one or two predecessors, as well as the whole milieu of the holiness movement that had this actually had the phrase and the notion of baptism in the spirit before they actually knew for sure what they were talking about. It is the experience of what happens in Azusa streets that needs to be theologized and needs to be explained in light of Christian doctrine. And that is where classical Pentecostal churches emerge from this Azusa street experience that then gets explained in a certain theological manner. So that's what we're capturing there.
1: Yeah, I would just say that's an excellent, um, Um, response to my concern, Um, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, But again, the point would be that in a decaying Christendom and in a desiccated Protestantism, the Azusa Street experience points doctrinally to the fact that the Holy Spirit had virtually disappeared uh, from the consciousness of the churches other than as some kind of numinous feeling that you have or something like that. And so the, the eruption of, of the Pentecostal experience presupposes something you and I have argued about uh, or talk, talked about for a number of years, the eclipse of the Holy Spirit um, in modern Christianity. There's a vacuum here that was filled by Pentecostalism, I think.
0: Well, if nothing else comes of this document that Lutherans take Pentecostals more seriously because it forces them to reckon with the Holy Spirit again, then fine. <laughs> that, that is more yeah, than right. enough yeah. for any ecumenical document to to achieve. Um, and so I just want to say on, on the flip side, you know, the reason why we started Doctrine then to Experience with Lutherans, again, it's somewhat artificial. And, you know, you and I did those two episodes last year on theology and experience. And can they really be separated? No, not really. But again, if you try to get a handle on things, you have to make some some distinctions. And the idea for us was really, that is where we're addressing the Schwermerai concern and all this stuff that erupts out of Pentecostalism, not all of which is good. There is also in early Pentecostalism, someone who experiences a vision that says, you should not be baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but only in the name of Jesus. And if only in the name of Jesus, then only Jesus is God. There is no doctrine of the Trinity. That is also... So a very early pentecostal experience, which classical pentecostals. Of the kind that we were talking to, decisively reject as not a legitimate experience of the true God. And of course, Trinitarian Lutherans will ardently agree with the, the Trinitarian Pentecostals on this point. So, what we're addressing from the Lutheran side is this concern that doctrine, that experience, or we could even say cumulative historical weight, as um, was the case by the time you know Luther and the Reformation roll around, can distort doctrine. Doctrine. Has this critical function of pruning away false, uh, false or misleading so-called experience, and so that that's kind of where we're speaking to the Schwermer concern that Lutherans inevitably bring to any discussion with Pentecostals.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I guess I basically buy that. I think that um, the uh, the real point of contention between the two traditions might be. The Pentecostal claim to have a full gospel, as opposed to the truncated gospel uh, of their Protestant an- ancestors, and that that would be an, something really worth uh, diving into. But let's go on with your document.
0: Right. Well, and of course that this is this is the thing: is it the pure gospel or the full gospel? We we brought that up in our proto dialogue as well, and. Um, Yes, that was one that um, we could not solve (laughs) for anyone. But I I think just as we leave this section, it's important to keep in mind that, again, um, at its best... Pentecostalism attempts to discern with the active movement of the Holy Spirit, especially as manifested in the lives of believers and their being given spiritual gifts specifically for the sake of mission. Um, th- this is worth noting that the Pentecostals, at least that I talk to, are very clear that spiritual gifts are given for missional purposes, not for personal self-aggrandizement. That is kind of their forward thrust. And for... Lutherans, uh, we function as a confessional church, and it's just a different orientation. It has to do with our being rooted in, you know, a university and being very committed to education and learnedness. Of course, there are many educated Pentecostals, but it is not nearly as has not been as central and defining of who they are as confessional and and. and, and a theological education has been for us, which means that we just uh, both historically and presently tend to process and assess things in different ways. And that at least had to be established at the beginning of our conversation.
1: Yeah, I think that in my generation, figures like Jimmy Swaggart and Pat Roberts and, and even earlier or, um, Oral Roberts uh, kind of dominated the consciousness of Pentecostalism And um, they were all uh, giving the impression of being, um, well, how do I put this? um, um, Chummy, um, a kind of chummy anti-intellectualism that um, um, was a kind of a, you know, it was like the thing that a friend of mine told me uh, that uh, they drove a preacher out of the church because they found out. That he had been writing manuscripts for his sermons, and, <laughs> and and this was a sign that he didn't trust the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know, you know. So I mean, that's kind of again, I'm I'm being a naive Lutheran bigot here, and just kind of coming out with these anecdotes about 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 these kind of concerns and so forth.
0: Yeah. And again, ecumenism should not delete or suppress those. Those those are real things. Um, and so another principle that I learned as a result of ecumenism is that if you're ecumenically concerned, you are also accountable to and for your own confessional family. And so, again, Dad, is there any chummy anti-intellectualism among Lutherans?
1: <laughs> well, the contemporary... No, no, I'm gonna hold it. I'm going to bite my tongue here because that that could take me off on a terrible tangent.
0: And have you ever known Lutheran pastors to be driven out of congregations for very spurious reasons? Oh, yes. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> the, the, this, is, this is the humbling aspect of ecumenism is all the things that you thought you could safely outsource to the other bad Christian group you discover are right here at home too.
1: Like clergy sexual abuse and all the finger pointing at the Catholics and Uh, when the other four fingers are pointing right back at ourselves. (laughs) There
0: you go. Okay, so moving on then to the second session on mission and proclamation. So you correctly identified that this entire section, other than the case studies, is joint. And that was very deliberate. Um, And... to a certain extent, what was interesting about this conversation that we had, it would seem uncontroversial because everything was shared. But the um, implicit concerns that are going on here is, first of all, um, well, we talk about proclamation in both word and deed. And so here I would say this is the... the Pentecostal um bigotry or uh, assumptions about Lutheran's, which may in certain cases be founded, but they had the impression that Lutheran's overall had shifted so decisively towards proclamation indeed in the form of you know diaconal service or um charitable support that um we we will do anything to feed clothe people and uh, advocate for them in distress, but God help us if we actually tell them why we're doing it, because we are motivated by the love that we received from God through Jesus Christ. And so they were kind of pushing us like, do you actually proclaim also in word? Do you think proclaiming in word is essential and necessary? Um, And of course, many of us do, but we also, again, can find those who are a little more hesitant to speak the name of Jesus. Uh, Again, though, if you take a global perspective on this, certainly there are um, plenty of lutherans who are constantly preaching the name of Jesus and others who would rather choke to death than say that name. So but but that was kind of one of the burdens here is is putting word and deed together. And maybe the the pushback on the other side was, well, do you preach the name of Jesus, but like it says in the epistle of James, say go in peace, sorry you're cold, I'm not going to give you my coat. And um that, that I would say, is a, a pretty unjust charge. If you actually look at mission movements and Pentecostalism as well, there has always been works of mercy, charity, care for the poor, which we'll get on to in the next session.
1: Oh, well, you know, Sarah, the Assemblies of God is the most racially diverse church in the United States, and it has made its mark, especially, I mean, there's some bourgeois movement in these mature Pentecostal uh Denominations towards middle class status, but the Assemblies of God has made its its uh, its mark by evangelizing uh, poor communities and communities of color. So you know, I think that clear clearly, the idea that they only care about converts as uh, scalps on the belt or something like that. Is, is, is clearly a bigoted um, uh, Protestant pre- prejudice. Yeah, I would agree. I, I'll tell you, I wanted to, the thing about this section I really liked is the emphasis, um, of course, the Trinitarian mission of salvation, uh, the whole grounding of it, that way is excellent. Um, and the strong affirmation that Christ is still active by the Holy Spirit. And so that you're, whenever you talk about... Um, um word or deed it's jesus christ who is truly present and at work for salvation and healing and all the other things and so forth am i right i mean that that's mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. basic emphasis on the real active presence of christ by the holy spirit correct
0: yeah, and I think uh, outsiders who have looked at at Pentecostalism have assumed that it's a Holy Spirit centered movement with Jesus shunted off to the side that is not at all accurate. It is definitely a Christo powerfully Christocentric movement, um but because they're, you know, a- a- attempting a fuller Trinitarianism here with the Spirit, it is the Spirit who gives the gifts in order to empower the preaching of Jesus Christ as savior and healer and soon coming king and all these other things. So, yes, that's well, that very good. That
1: also sounds like Lutheran theology to me, um, um, especially the emphasis on the real presence, and which is kind of a bafflement to me, because when you did talk about in the section about the Lord's Supper and baptism, I noticed that the language is, we do something here in the sacraments. Uh, you know, so the emphasis is on some kind of human action. Now, of course, Lutherans would not exclude the fact that humans do something, (laughs) right? But the uh, theological density of a sacrament is that in this particular way, Christ has promised to be present and do something for us. And so I thought it was rather odd that for all the emphasis in the joint uh, uh, Trinitarian mission of salvation on the real Presence and activity of Christ, suddenly the activity of Christ drops out when you're talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper.
0: So that represents a topic yet to be covered the, that is true. A baptism and the Lord's Supper, what we call sacraments, what they call ordinances, have not by any means been dealt with here. So Lutherans who are looking to have that solved will be disappointed. I can tell one little story from the proto-dialogue that the Strasbourg Institute did before this dialogue process, um, which is that we were talking and, and the Pentecostals were describing with loving passion their experience of the presence of Christ in worship. And in mission and in devotion and all these kind of things. And finally, my dear colleague, Theodor Dieter, German, in his wonderfully diffident kind of way said, I don't understand. You Pentecostals believe that Christ is present absolutely everywhere except the bread and the wine. This does not make <laughs> sense. <laughs> and to their credit, the Pentecostals at the table looked at each other, thought for a moment and said, you're right. That doesn't make sense. We better work on that. Why are we Zwinglians? (laughs) Zwinglianism doesn't work for us at all. And they concluded that it was the heritage of anti-Catholicism. That's where Pentecostal bigotry really kicks in. Um, Anything that looks Catholic is by definition bad. Uh so they have um formally given this very uh human centered, um, absent Jesus version of at least the Lord's Supper as part of I would say like the holiness and Baptist anti-Catholic heritage. But it doesn't make any sense in any respect if you look at the wider trends and sweep of Pentecostal theology and worship practice. So so we can hope that we will we will uh bring them over onto our team eventually.
1: Okay. Onward and upward now. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to the service to the poor.
0: Yeah, and I just want to end that. The, the section on proclamation also addresses the problem of sheep stealing, which you identified. And there's been good work on a multilateral level against um, proselytism, intra-Christian proselytism. So those who are concerned can have a look at that section. So then this third section, as you said, is to bring good news to the poor. Um, I remember some uh, what I thought were fairly comical conversations where the, uh, the Pentecostals were like, you know, well, we, we, we have been a movement of the poor and um, the, the Lutherans being a little bit like, well, we're obviously, you know, guilty bourgeois and then being like, no, wait a minute, we've had a lot of poor people, too. <laughs> You know the the Lwf came into existence and before it the Lutheran World Convention came into existence in response to a massive refugee crisis after both world wars that hugely affected like millions and millions of displaced Lutherans. Who had lost everything in in the fighting and the bombing right. and the so forth, and uh, where we are growing by far the fastest in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I think you can safely say uh, the overwhelming majority of our Lutherans are very very poor, and so it is only a very distorted um, Nordic, uh, German, North American um, view of Lutheranism that thinks that we are we are all all rich and uh, the the oppressors and the privileged. Um, But the real, I would say, the real driving concern behind this, uh, of course, is to talk about service to those in need as an obvious extension of the concern about proclamation indeed. But uh, uh, anyone who reads to the end will see that the real bite uh, going on here is about prosperity gospel, because that is what... um, Anxious Lutherans will immediately conflate with Pentecostalism. There is assumption that Pentecostalism is prosperity gospel and vice versa. Um, if you look at you know kind of demographically and historically, prosperity gospel is a separate movement from Pentecostalism. It has different roots in 19th century. You know, like the uh, the, the mind control stuff, New Thought and transcendentalism and stuff like that. There are definitely some Pentecostals along the way who pick it up and promote it but it is much more tightly associated in a public way with neo-Pentecostal movements like the Word of Faith movements. And um, at least on an official level, the the Assemblies of God, for instance, has decisively rejected that kind of name-it-and-claim-it theology. So this, I would say, Pentecostals even more than any other confessional or denominational grouping, you really have to judge on a case-by-case basis. You don't need to assume that Pentecostal Christians are officially prosperity gospel. You will probably find elements of that. Frankly, I find elements of it among mainline churches too, though it usually co- uh, covers itself in a different colored cloak. Um, but you really have to figure out what kind of Pentecostal you're dealing with here. Anyway, the point is to us together, we were decisively rejected this faulty prosperity gospel as both Lutherans and Pentecostals speaking in one voice.
1: And you also affirm the a righteousness of a, a biblical theology of blessing, right. and that and that God's will for His creation is abundance and life. Um, but of course, that has to be understood socially and not just individually.
0: Right. Actually, one of my favorite parts of this section is we have um, four questions to ask. To test a theology of blessing or prosperity to find out which it is. And those questions are what exactly is being promised and on what grounds? At what cost? At whose expense? And for what motive? And then we have kind of breaking down each of those questions in, into sub questions, and I think that could be a really helpful guide uh, just for anybody trying to figure out what's going on in in uh, promises that are being offered to the faithful, um, whether it is a faulty theology of prosperity or a faithful theology of blessing.
1: Good, very good.
0: All right, now we get on to part four, which is by far the most exciting. I'm not sure. I think uh, maybe maybe Pentecostals and Catholics have dealt with this, but I am not personally familiar with uh, any ecumenical document that talks about deliverance ministry or uh, which in- involves exorcism and escape from evil. So um, th- this was pretty fun, and this this is, for example, where you get um, a distinctive. Pentecostal and commentary and Lutheran commentary in addition to our joint statements. I was mentioning earlier that they're kind of different philosophies of what you should try to accomplish in an ecumenical statement. And so for some of these, we speak with one voice. Uh, Here is a case where we felt that for the um, credibility to our respective communities, we really needed to be able to speak specifically out of our own traditions. And we knew that, especially in the case of Lutherans, again, because there's such a difference, between in different parts of the worlds. Um, and this is uh, talking about um, fighting the devil, uh, obviously goes goes deeply and far back to Luther himself, uh, that we needed to be able to speak to our our, our own constituency, uh, n- not just to the, the Pentecostals here. So uh, actually, Dad, why don't you, you say what, what was interesting to you about the section on healing and deliverance?
1: Well, you know, through the years in this podcast, I've mentioned my desire that Lutheran churches would utilize the service of the word for healing. Uh, And I think that you can't read the ministry of Jesus in Galilee uh, in the synoptic or in the four gospels without being um, um, overwhelmed by the fact that the sign of the nearness of the reign of God is uh, physical and spiritual healing of a broken and hurting uh, and and sorrowing, uh, groaning creation. And that's, of course, taken up by the Apostle Paul theologically in Romans chapter 8. The whole creation, uh, you know, yearns with fervent expectation for the revealing of the children of God. Um, So I think that, you know, the fact that we have so you know, I I would never want to undermine the centrality of the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of the sinner with the holy God as at the heart of the gospel. Um, um, But I would also want that uh, to be uh, closely connected with Jesus's ministry of healing as a sign of the reign of God. And moreover, I think this connects with your ta- discussion of the deliverance from evil because the framing of that in the synoptic gospels especially is the conflict between the reign of god and the regnum diaboli the kingdom of the devil it's the apocalyptic conflict that i'm constantly referencing um, and i notice that uh in this section uh, uh now you'll have to tell me which side is actually saying this, because I didn't make note of that. But there is this recognition that the acts of healings uh, uh, in Jesus then and in Jesus by the Spirit now are um, are temporary. They're temporal healings. Uh, they're not. You're not promised a perfect life yet, uh, which awaits the denouement in the Parousia or the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Uh, because there is still this ongoing conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil that frames this entire discussion of healing and deliverance.
0: Yeah, very good. So I think in this section, readers will find that we address all the concerns, like that healing is guaranteed, or if you didn't get healed, it's because you didn't believe, or that all affliction is demonic in origin. You know, we deal with all of those concerns and abuses really well. And yes, it's it's very clear that everybody still dies, <laughs> and we don't have a cure for that. Uh, d- death itself is the cure for death, uh, followed by resurrection. Um, so I, I think in that respect, very much so, What I think was really important about this, especially for Lutherans to hear, and I'm definitely talking to us, us North Atlantic type Lutherans, but we have often lamented that Holy Communion is being distributed to the unbaptized as a form of evangelistic ministry when it is a a sacrament that is given to the believer in the church. And I think what you get out of this section, or at least what I got out of this section, is push pointing us back towards the gospels is what does jesus do to bring people to him it, you know it, it isn't baptism which is not a part of the gospel story it's alluded to but it's it's what happens later for people who have come to jesus and then after that the supper is for them the way jesus reaches out to people is proclaiming in word and deed healing people of their illnesses and delivering them from the power of evil those are actually the evangelistic things and so i think a lot of you know the kind of uh, spoiled mainline, um, churches that use the sacraments as the tool of conversion are completely ignoring what actually Jesus and his apostles use as the tools of conversion. And I give Pentecostals a lot of credit for seeing that. And again, as I, I said earlier, when we were talking about spiritual gifts, they understand spiritual gifts are meant for mission purposes. They are not to self-aggrandize you as a spiritual person, but to help you reach out to the least and the lost and the suffering. And so that that's, to me, you can tell. This is, I I think, the most important section of this and uh, potentially, especially for um, a certain kind of Lutheran, the most provocative. But I, I hope it will give them a lot to, to chew on and reconsider.
1: You know, I what th- I think that's great, Sarah, and I, I'm, I'm 100% with you on provoking re- Lutherans uh, who love to, especially the types that love to appeal to the historical Jesus uh, and then um, totally omit the scandalous business of his doing exorcisms and, uh, and uh, healing, physical healings and so forth. Um, but what about, you know, and this is a lively question in my part of the world where I live in Southwest Virginia, did the discussion of snake handling ever come up?
0: <laughs> no, but it, it, it is like your part of the world. <laughs> and a very very tiny number of people that, that that I mean I'm sorry that is such a typical Lutheran prejudice that pentecostals are snake handlers.
1: Well no it's but it's really true here. I mean in this part of the, this part of the world.
0: Yeah, I know. It's it's this very very small number of of Appalachian churches that are fairly disconnected from other pentecostal movements. But if you look at pentecostalism worldwide, snake handling is very modest. And I should actually say that, that comes from the the longer end of Mark's gospel it also talks about um, swallowing poisons and not being affected by them. Actually, I remember when Zeke was about seven, we were reading through the gospel of Mark out loud after dinner and we got to the end and I was like, oh crap, I can't tell, read this thing from the Bible in front of my seven-year-old that you can swallow poison and survive. But then I thought, well, (laughs) am, am I already deleting the Bible for my kid? And so I decided to read it through. And then I said, but you know, you don't just get to swallow poison whenever you want to. It's only when God is specifically using it to make a witness to other people. And I think he got the point. He never attempted to swallow poison. But I learned <laughs> after that, that the missionary to Indonesia, uh, Ludwig Nomansen, He actually, when he came to whichever grouping in, uh, I think on the island of Sumatra, he came to, they were extremely skeptical of him and in fact disliked him so much that they poisoned his food and he ate it and he survived. And then they were like, holy cow, this guy really is from God. And they all converted and they became Christian and they understand it through the light of this Mark 16 passage about poison and surviving. So, you know, even these really, really alarming Corners of the Bible, you know. I, I don't know. The Spirit put them there for a reason. Sometimes they are actually made manifest.
1: Yeah, and they're called acts of power, and that's that's yeah. demonstrations of power. Uh, Paul says that it wasn't my fancy words, but my demonstrations of power that brought you to Christ. That's Paul in in First Corinthians one. I believe the very passage where he talks about the theology of the cross. So I think we've got some category confusions on our side.
0: Mm. Well, I think the, the point for both Lutherans and Pentecostals to take is these have to be God's work of power at God's good pleasure and not something that we harness and control for our own strategies. Yeah,
1: exactly. Now, what about the conclusion here? One, one The thing that really moved me was this statement about how you worship together and how the experience of worshiping together Uh, really helped things along. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, you know, for an ecumenic, so (laughs) ecumenism is a fundamentally incoherent because a divided church is fundamentally (laughs) incoherent. And so it seems obvious, but just think about the fact that we are all Christians and we are Able to pr- at least pray together. I know not all uh, ecumenical dialogues can, you know, uh, fully engage in, like, for example, the Lord's Supper together, but. All ecumenical dialogues engage in prayer together to the same God, to the same Trinitarian Lord, um, in a way that doesn't happen, for instance, in interreligious or interfaith dialogue. And yet, the whole reason we're sitting down to talk is because, on some level, we cannot pray together and we cannot worship together and we cannot, we don't trust each other's clergy and we don't acknowledge each other's existence qua church. So it's fundamentally incoherent. And part of the importance of an ecumenical encounter is to experience that incoherence and be made deeply uncomfortable by it, while at the same time, in the midst of that discomfort, having new avenues of mutual recognition open up in the very act of worship. So yes, part of what happened um, in every single dialogue is we went to each other's churches, and, you know, they were very different in style. The Lutherans ones were, you know, more liturgical, um, generally more subdued, though not the one in Madagascar. That was very exciting. And, um, you know, and in the with the Pentecostals, they, they might have been very small or they might have been very large. When we were in Pasadena, we went to this gigantic Church of God in Christ um, church, which is a historic black Pentecostal church that had, I mean, soul music that Aretha Franklin would have been proud of and the most slick cameras on a huge boom crane, like sliding around so it could be broadcast. I mean, people would pay hundreds of dollars to hear this as a secular concert and it was just open worship for anybody to attend. And um, so, yeah, I mean, th- that's another problem with the genre of the ecumenical document is that you don't get um, any of the, the background reading and study. You don't get the personal relationships, which I have to say of all the the dialogues I have sat in on, this was definitely the, the warmest and the friendliest and most open and real friendships for uh both within the teams and across the teams. And, you know, above all the worship, you don't get to have the experience of worshiping together. So one of the things that you we hope for and what's technically called the reception of an ecumenical document is it will give some framework for people to go and try it themselves and do some testing, and they might find, like you found when I was a kid, that you know the the person on the other side is is um, a hostile sheep stealer and is not interested in conversation. But you also might find that something like this gives you a chance to form a friendship that it would never have even occurred to you to try for, because now you have a way of thinking about it and you know addressing. Mutual concerns in a more positive light.
1: You know, I, I really uh, resonate to that. I think that's exactly right. You have to use a document like this to get a, a down on the ground conversation going in your local communities.
0: Yeah. So let's just wrap up with things we would like to see um, discussed in the future. So, Dad, you had a few things, um, again, assuming that we can actually write a joint Lutheran-Pentecostal systematic theology at this point. What sort of things (laughs) would you like to see addressed in future discussions because I I assume that we are going to do a, a second round at some points that's kind of I think that's in the works right now I recall at least you said there was no doctrine of creation and in fact um, I would uh, you maybe extend that to say there is no doctrine of the father there is a lot about the Son of God and the Spirit of God but not so much the father
1: yeah that's increasingly becoming another uh, blind spot um, in all the churches if the Holy Spirit was eclipsed, for a thousand years. I think the beginning of the eclipse of God the Father is taking place right now, though there are some hopeful signs like the Scandinavian, uh, the new Scandinavian theology of creation, um, which is prefigured in, in theologians like Gustav Wingren uh, Luther on vocation, and so forth. I think also that, of course, uh, the question of rebaptism. I don't didn't perceive to have been discussed at all uh, in the dialogue, in, in the document. And then full gospel versus pure gospel was another uh, concern of mine. I already mentioned the, the problem of the sacraments. Um, I think also, you know, that um, the um, relationship of Pentecostalism to its antecedents in Protestantism through pietism, Wesleyanism, and revivalism would be interesting to hear the Pentecostals talking about. And on the Lutheran side, of course, you know, you have great theologians like Ernst Kaesman, who uh, single-handedly brought to consciousness on the precedent of Johannes Weiss and Albert Schweitzer, who um, a renewed discussion of the apocalyptic framing of the of the gospel of Christ. And I think from a fear of Pentecostal literalism and the kind of things that were popularized by Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, (laughs) you know, and all that kind of rapture theology. There's just been an allergy to what is actually something extremely important for early Lutheran theology as witnessed in Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Though devils all the world should fill, all threatening to devour us. We tremble not, we fear no ill, they cannot overpower us, etc.
0: It is an interesting observation that has been made that as Pentecostals were rediscovering apocalyptic experientially, the New Testament guilds, which of course is led by German Lutherans at its its outset, is rediscovering apocalyptic in the scripture uh, in a scholarly fashion.
1: And that might have something to do with the collapse of Christian European civilization in the First World War, um, a collapse that was then sealed with the Second World War and uh, the emergence of the the nuclear age and the threat of mass annihilation uh, from mutually assured destruction. All of these accumulating catastrophes Kind of give a kind of a social context to the rediscovery of apocalyptic.
0: Yeah, yeah, those are all great suggestions. Um, what I what I would like to see us address is um, I don't think we're quite at the Lord's Supper stage yet, but definitely we need to talk about baptism, um, what it is, what it isn't, rebaptism, challenges related to rebaptism. To me, that actually is the most urgent practical ecumenical question to solve across the board, not only because of re-baptism of infant baptized people, but in a fairly shocking amount of re-baptism of adult baptized people (laughs) across these uh, believers' baptism uh, churches. And and that logically also connects to the question of baptism in the spirit. Um, You know, this is not really addressed at all in our statement, but Pentecostalism as a distinctive movement emerges out of finally having a very specific experience to attach to the term baptism in the spirit, which had been floating in the ether for a number of decades already by the time of the Azusa Street revival. And that is so important in the self-definition of early Pentecostalism. I've had a hard time getting a handle on how central it is to Pentecostal, let's say classical Pentecostal denominational identity today. It seems like it is not as central as it used to be, but since that's so important to their founding story, that's something I would like to understand better. Um, And then as it related to that um, in classical and early Pentecostal teaching, baptism in the spirit always results in the bestowal of charismatic gifts by the Holy Spirit in north america the the test case was speaking in tongues like you had to speak in tongues. It's proof that you'd really been baptized in the spirit, even if you only did it once that was like that was like the the external proof that you had really had this experience that you claimed to have um but there I think there's a a richer understanding of charismatic gifts being given. Um, on an ongoing basis, and again, specifically for the sake of mission. Um, When the charismatic movement erupted in the 60s and 70s and caused a great deal of alarm, especially among mainliners whose uh, um, members were beginning to claim to have charismatic gifts there was a huge fixation especially on what's called the spectacular ones like speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing or utterance of knowledge and stuff like that and of course uh, you know lutherans being lutherans we, we liked you know the the modest ones like teaching and administration that's more our style than than yeah. outright ones in fact the uh, the ALC, one of the predecessor bodies of the ELCA, actually sent like a team of theologians and psychologists to one of the, the first Lutheran churches to go charismatic because they assumed they were dealing with a cult of personality and like very weak-willed people who were being sucked into a guru. Of course, that does happen. You know that this is a real problem in the world. In this particular case, they said, "Gosh, these people seem to be pretty well put together. They don't seem to be, you know, obsessively slavish to their pastor, huh?" <laughs> they still weren't very positive about yeah. it afterwards. But um, I think again, to this, this is one of the issues that needs to be addressed for Lutherans to take, uh, I would say specifically again, North Atlantic Lutherans to take this seriously, is to have some honest reckoning with abuses in order to be able to talk in a a more um, open and um, receptive way to what charismatic gifts might be. On the flip side, uh, there's also plenty of documentation that not nearly as many people in Pentecostal denominations today believe themselves to have been given charismatic gifts of the spectacular sort either. So we see an interesting institutionalization process, which always happens with every church, every religious movement, no matter what, that Pentecostals are also reckoning with and trying to figure out, well, well, if Jesus isn't coming real soon, how do we, you know, take care of our our people, our pastors, our students, our hospitals for the long haul? And um, right. you know, if nothing else, we have some experience of how to deal with long term existence rather than short term. Anyway, those are the things that I hope we will be taking up in future dialogues.
1: Well, I'm very glad to hear that another round of dialogue is in the works, um, and I hope our podcast here cre- creates interest in. People actually, uh, you can get the document online from the Lutheran World Federation, right?
0: Yep, I will have a link to it in the show notes. So please, uh, folks, uh, download it and have a read.
1: Have a read. And uh, if you're so moved by it, uh, see if you can get something going on the ground locally in your communities.
0: Yes, absolutely. And that, that is the case for every, every ecumenical encounter and statements. I mean, the, the goal is is not to just be at the top, but to be at, at every level of church interactions. And the ones that make the most difference to people's lives are always always the local. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that.
1: Okay, well done.
0: All right. Well, next time on the show, we will be discussing brain, mind, soul, or to coin a term, neurotheology.